Greetings, and welcome to SLIS's Spring 2011 Colloquia, a program now in our 10th consecutive semester, brought to you by your School of Library and Information Science here at San Jose State University. I am Dr. Anthony Bernier, and along with Dale David, our technical producer, we are offering this series as part of our school's vision to be recognized as a leader in graduate education in library and information science. Before I introduce today's colloquium speaker, a few announcements. First, please look for new colloquia presentations on the SLIS website throughout the spring term, where you will also find an archive of our previous recorded presentations on the SLIS homepage at sliseweb.sjsu.edu. We also offer our colloquia as free podcasts. Details on how to access these presentations, either through RSS feeds or the iTunes store, can be found on the school's colloquia page. The SLIS colloquia can also be viewed via Blip TV, the popular video sharing website. The SLIS Blip TV channel can be accessed at sjsuslis.blip.tv. For our SLIS students, I would like to encourage you to visit a special website detailing the many social networking opportunities the school offers for you to connect virtually and otherwise with other SLIS students. It's our own SJSU SLIS social networking wiki where you'll find all your favorite networking resources, Ning, MySpace, LinkedIn, Google Groups, Flickr, Facebook, DGO, among others. The school also maintains another wiki called Cool Web 2.0 Tools, which offers a way for you to share and learn about the rapidly changing information resources you'll want to know about for classes, socializing, and a variety of other applications. While these previous announcements were intended primarily for our SLIS students, I also have a few items to share with everyone in the SLIS community. As you may know, the school maintains a robust profile at our professional association conferences and meetings. So I'd like to call your attention to the school's upcoming professional conference appearances at this spring's professional events. SLIS's reception at the Ontario Library Association, OLA, is scheduled for Thursday, February 3, 2011, from 6 to 8 o'clock p.m. at the Intercontinental Hotel in Toronto, Canada. SLIS's reception at the ACRL conference, the Association of College and Research Libraries, will be held on Thursday, March 31, 2011, from 4 o'clock to 6 p.m. at the Pyramid Club in Philadelphia. And SLIS will be back in Philadelphia hosting a luncheon reception at the SLA Conference Special Libraries Association on Monday, June 13, from 11.30 a.m. to 1.30 p.m., also at Philadelphia's Pyramid Club. SLIS's ALA reception will be hosted on Saturday, June 25, from 4 p.m. to 6.30 p.m. in New Orleans. SLIS will host a reception at SAA Conference, the Society of American Archivists, on Thursday, August 25, 2011, from 5 to 7 p.m. on the 80th floor 
of the Mid-America Club in Chicago. And in addition to our famous receptions and social events, SLIS will also host exhibits at the May 2011 Canadian Library Association in Halifax, Nova Scotia, the World Library uh, and Information Congress, and IFLA General in San Juan, Puerto Rico in August, the American Society for Information Science and Technology, ACIST, in New Orleans, Louisiana in October. Of course, you will find all the details on these and upcoming events and experiences on our school's webpage. The faculty hopes you see, uh, to see you at these professional conferences and encourages you to take the opportunity to become better acquainted with us as well as to meet up with classmates, friends, and colleagues. We hope you enjoy our spring colloquia, uh, all these presentations, and thank you for helping make the series such a success. Stephen Ramirez is the CEO of Beyond the Arc Incorporated, a management consulting firm recognized by Forrester Research as a leader in the field of customer experience. He has earned both his BA and MBA from the University of California at Berkeley. Stephen is former executive uh, with Time Warner, where he was responsible for creating and successfully implementing corporate development strategies. And he is co-founder of the San Francisco Silicon Valley Integration Gurus, a professional association of merger integration executives from leading Bay Area companies, including Cisco, Google, and Microsoft. As the CEO of Beyond the Arc, Stephen leads teams of analysts and strategy consultants that help uh, clients use data mining and text analytics for customer acquisition, retention, and growth. Stephen has particularly deep expertise in the area of financial services, customer experiences, and has led numerous projects helping to identify and develop multiple and multi-channel solutions for customer issues encompassing branches, online banking, ATM, mobile, and phone. Stephen has created and taught courses in business management for UC Berkeley and has been a speaker at Berkeley's Haas School of Business. He is currently at work on a book about best practices in merger integration, post-merger integration, I should say. And given the role of information and information flows that constitute such a high profile of Beyond the Arc's portfolio of services, we thought it would be advantageous to invite Stephen here today to get a glimpse into uh, how many, uh, how so many of the skills that we develop here at SLIS are directly applicable to entrepreneurial and commercial activity. Stephen and I have been friends since grad school at Berkeley, and so it gives me special pleasure today, on behalf of the entire SLIS faculty, to welcome him to uh, the colloquia for his talk, How Cutting-Edge Information and Text Mining Creates Hidden Value. Mr. Stephen Ramirez. Anthony, thank you very much. I'm really excited to be here and uh, really uh, glad to have this opportunity to talk uh, not only about the work that we do at Beyond the Arc, but really what some of the uh, interesting trends are as it relates to data mining and in particular in text mining. Uh, I think that we've heard a lot in the media recently about the power of data mining, and I think that there's a growing interest in it. And so I'd like to sort of take you a little bit deeper and to talk to you a little bit about um, not so much the tools, but really the processes and the analytical thinking that powers data mining and text analysis. So today, uh, here's the roadmap for our conversation. 
Uh, let me first start off by telling you a little bit about this term you might be starting to hear about, predictive analytics. So we'll spend a little bit of time talking about that um, and, how, and how it's changing the way that we derive value from information. Um, I'll also step you through just some typical case studies about how predictive analytics um, are used and the power that they have to be able to, uh, to help organizations solve problems. And the second question we'll go into is the, the field of text mining. Um, and how does text analysis help us to create additional insights on top of what we might get from structured data mining? And there I'll focus in a little bit and talk about the experience, uh, customer experience, uh, and the evolving analysis that's happening around social media and how these text analysis tools are being applied in that domain as well. Now, this is not just going to be a talk about uh, the technology or the process. It's really driven by the insights and the expertise of the information professionals who are doing this work. And so I've put it as uh, man versus machine and what's the role for the information professional in uh, doing data mining and text analysis. Uh, and in particular, I want to step you through some of the questions that analysts in this field ask and how you apply your critical thinking skills to frame and answer some of the questions using data mining and text analysis. And then finally, uh, before we leave, I think that given the attention that we're seeing in the press and the kind of the buzz around data mining in particular, you know, there are some public policy questions that I think we want to at least leave on the table I don't know that I'm going to have the answers for you there, but I think that certainly I can spark some interesting questions uh, as you delve now deeper into what data mining is really all about. But first, let me just tell you a little bit about ourselves. Um, I run a company called Beyond the Arc, um, and we are a management consulting firm. And we have, as, as the introduction noted, a wide range of different activities that we provide, different services that we provide. But we can really just sort of summarize that down to saying we help businesses build better, stronger, closer relationships with their customers. That is really the focus of our, of our organization. And you'll see that we use these tools of data mining and text mining on behalf of our clients to really help strengthen the relationships that they have with their customers. Okay, so let's, uh, let's delve into a little bit about uh, data mining. What, what is, well, first of all, with predictive analytics. Um, I, I was just getting started here, and I thought, well, how do I define in one word what this new field of predictive analytics is really all about? Uh, and, and how is it different from what people might have in their minds about uh, data mining? You know, I said, well, I think it's actually the same thing, but Predictive analytics just sounds a lot cooler. It sounds, it sounds a lot more cutting edge. And that is really the vocabulary that you're seeing more uh, among leaders in the field like uh, IBM and SAS and some of the other um, uh, analytics provider, the tool set providers are really sort of promoting the idea of predictive analytics. One way that this is, I think, different or one thing that's important here is it's the combination of um, the technology but it's, it's matching that technology with the way that you use those tools. I think that one of the things that we immediately think about from data mining is, you know, a master computer that's just crunching amazing amounts of data, maybe doing some kind of analysis of text. 
but we don't actually think through the process of the people who are running those machines. You know, what's the modeling process look like? What's the, how do you even frame a, a question or, or, or a challenge so that it can be approached by data mining and predictive analytics? That really is all wrapped up into this topic. So it's not just about being a, and as a matter of fact, as the tools get easier and easier, it's not at all about being a computer programmer. It's not about having deep technical skills, that actually the key skill that you need is really, is really analytic skills. Now, I can speak to this directly by looking at one of the newest members uh, to my team. So we recently hired um, a graduate, um, smart guy from Berkeley, um, but who had never worked in the field of predictive analytics ever before. But he had great critical thinking skills um, from a language perspective. He was a wonderful writer, uh, and he had enough good quantitative skills to be able to feel comfortable working on the computer. In a period, really, of about two months, he went from that very introductory, never before really knowing anything about predictive analytics, to now being a very qualified analyst and actually being able to share his approach, his insights, the way that he approaches problems using the tools with other analysts. And so now he's, gone, he's become sort of a, a master user in the period of really just a couple of months. And I think that that shows you how open the field is and that the opportunities are really there if you've got the interest and, and the inclination. So this really is about um, connecting the data to effective action. So it's not just can we analyze data, it's not just can we shape the information, but a really strong emphasis behind predictive analytics is is this something that we can actually do something about? Is there, is there an implication for action? Is there something that actually flows from this? Because really, predictive analytics is about solving real-world problems with a new set of tools and a new set of approaches. So let's talk about some of the domains in which you can apply predictive analytics. Here is sort of a, a list of the, you know, it really is a bit of a laundry list of all of the ways that predictive analytics can be applied to uh, common, you know, common problems. The first area that you hear a lot about in terms of uh, predicting the future is really this idea of someone's propensity to take a certain action. So predictive analytics is looking at, can I identify the people who are most likely to make a purchase, or they already have a certain product, what's the likelihood that they'll accept an offer for another product or for a discount or for some way to deepen that customer relationship? On the other hand, we look at things like their payment history, and if I can manage my business by knowing who's most likely to default, you know, for example, on a loan or on an obligation, then that has a lot of, how can I act on that? There's a lot of really clear implications that I can make if I understand who's more likely to default. The first one, obviously, is if they're likely to default, well, perhaps just from the beginning, I'm not going to issue that new credit card or give them that loan. You know, there's obviously a yes or no decision that immediately can flow from that. But, you know, 
financial services companies, banks, insurance companies, they're actually in the business of extending credit. They want you to be able to have that credit card or have that loan, have that financing for your auto or for your RV. So it's not just a matter of likelihood to default because they want to say no, but it's actually more a case of what's the likelihood to default so they can understand the risk profile and then charge you appropriately. Because if they can charge people based on the risks that they represent, then you're going to pay more for being higher risk. And yes, some people are going to default, but that higher amount that they're charging for that access to financing means that they can offer that to, to people and not have to worry about the overall level of default. So they can manage their business, and predictive analytics gives them a very systematic way and a, and a way to apply those learnings that actually have an impact on a day-to-day -day, day -day basis. Predictive analytics is also used to segment and think about this mass of populations, this mass group of people, and to break them down into smaller groups that makes sense depending on the problem that you're looking at. So really this is talking about segmentation and there's different ways to segment the customers based on everything from their demographics to their lifestyle to their behavior to their interests to their uh, certain products that they already have and predictive analytics really can sort of help you um, to answer some of these questions. I think that gives you an idea of kind of the breadth of ways that these tools can be applied. And, and I think that you can see that for each one of these, there's, very, um, there's a very immediate payoff. There's a very clear um, call to action that you can take once you've learned this information. I'm now just going to just quickly step through a few more just concrete case studies. These are really sort of industry standard case studies that can just sort of give you an idea of how predictive analytics is being applied on, on just sort of a day-in, day-out basis. So the problem that this company faced was they were looking at a way to cost-effectively prevent churn. What that means is those are just the number of people who walk out the door and just never come back. And so how do you maintain that relationship and keep churn low? Well, one of the things they realized was that it was just increasingly expensive to try to you know, generate new business, keep people coming back. They were spending a lot of money, but not necessarily getting the right impact. They used predictive analytics in this case to look at their email marketing. And they were able to segment their customers based on the likelihood that that customer was going to voluntarily leave. That's one. Now, they didn't just look at number of customers who left because, you know, quite frankly, sometimes you're not that dissatisfied if somebody walks out the door. If that's an unprofitable customer, if that's a difficult customer, if that's a customer in a business that you're trying to exit, it's not so much that they left, but that they voluntarily left and, and you sort of wanted them to stay. They were also, though, able to look at the likelihood that this person would um, respond favorably to the campaign. And these were some of the outputs of the, you know, of the process that they stepped through. And at the end of the day, they were really able to drastically reduce their costs and to be able to maintain that engagement with a customer on an ongoing basis. Now, here's another situation. We sort of talked about it a little bit earlier on, which is uh, how data mining can help to reduce credit risk. So it's not, again, a matter of do I, is it a yes or no, but what's the acceptable level of risk that I want, that I want to take on? 
Now, in looking at risk, we look at an entire portfolio. There's some customers, we get, some customers we have to have a certain base that we can absolutely depend that they're going to make their payments, that we know to expect it, and, and we price that accordingly. But we can also have some riskier customers because those riskier customers are going to lead to um, greater profits, right? If we can manage that risk, we'll get, get greater profits from it. So the question is, how do you balance that all out? And that new customer is on the phone. They want, it, they want that credit card. They want that loan offer. They want that new car financing. You have 30 seconds or less to be able to go through this very complex decisioning to figure out, is this an acceptable risk? So predictive analytics often does the kind of modeling to understand the customer profiling, and then that can be deployed real time in, for example, a call center, so that by the time you call and we, under, and we identify the two or three factors that make you uh, a good credit risk or a bad credit risk, we can decide, in this case, within less than 10 seconds, what kind of offer to make to you if you're a risky customer, and, and as a result, reduce delinquency and increase the profit. So that's how, in this case, this predictive analytics has been, has been deployed. This one is perhaps my favorite. Uh, predictive analytics can be used to fight crime. The issue, very, very realistically, uh, this, is, this actually, this case study comes from a few years ago, but I think it's probably even more compelling today. You know, cities are really strapped um, in fighting violent crime. It's costly, it takes resources, it's very difficult to manage. Using the same process of predictive analytics, they were, this, this particular um, municipality was able to use uh, risk-based patrolling to reduce crime. They saw an immediate uh, impact of homicides you know, being drastically reduced. So how did they do it? How did they apply predictive analytics to fight crime? So the first thing they did was they used historical crime data to generate some models. Now, they didn't know what data was going to be important. They didn't know what the inputs were. This is the skill, really, of the analyst who's using the tool. This is the information professional behind the scenes looking at the outcome saying, well, we have some understanding of, you know, in this case, violent crime. We have some understanding. Let's now test those variables, let's bring new associations into the process, and let's, let's, let's see if they're valid in being able to predict the outcome. They were able to tie that back to specific geographies, so in this case, actual neighborhoods, of where once the model showed that there were certain, not just certain areas that were high risk, but also certain times of day, also, other characteristics, other situations in the scenario that, uh, led, to the, that led to the model. So, for example, uh, maybe it was um, Friday night before a three-day weekend. That might have been one of the factors that went into the model that allowed them to deploy this risk-based patrolling. And then using some of the new technologies for, you know, that we see every day through you know, providers like Google and MapQuest, the ability to take data and automatically generate maps from that, they were able to sort of lay that across their, uh, their patrol routes in their neighborhoods and essentially do sort of a heat map and show where the, the predicted levels of activity might be highest and then there, therefore deploy um, officers you know, in advance of any trouble coming up. 
So it's really a case of predictive analytics truly, or analytics, I should say, really predicting where the action is going to take place. And one final one. Um, this is a use of predictive analytics for clustering. So in this case, uh, the problem was that the Army um, had an issue with providing uh, uniforms for female soldiers. They had a lot of uniforms that didn't fit properly. They were either you know, way too big or way too small. Uh, the sizes that most people needed never seemed to be in stock. And as a result, they had a lot of very dissatisfied service members who never seemed to have the right, you know, what, what they needed to be able to get the job done. The resolution here, um, female soldiers now have uniforms that actually fit, and important from the organization's point of view, that they don't have to carry excess inventory. So how did they do it? First of all, they gathered the data. Again, a case of the analyst thinking about the various inputs they might need, and so they recorded measurements of a large sample of female soldiers. Then they used analytics to do clustering. And what they decided is that of all these different variables, there were actually uh, clusters of variables that clumped together around what they were calling essentially body types. And then based on those body types, they were able to produce uniforms based on that data rather than just saying we're going to have you know, 10% in size 4, 10% in size 5, 10% in size 6. They had some real data to be able to make, those, to make those decisions. So I think that gives you sort of a, an idea and an overview of predictive analytics and data mining and some of the power that it has. I mean, obviously, my experience is on the, is on the private sector working with large organizations. But I think as you think, th think through some of the case studies, you see that some of these same issues affect any kind of organization, be it you know, private sector, public sector, educational. Clearly, I think the case studies sort of speak to that. Now, let's take it a step further. Now let's leave the world of structured, known, quantitative data and now move into the power of the written word. And in some cases, although we're not going to go into it today, even the power of the spoken word and how these same predictive analytics can be applied to text data. So we're going to talk about two cases. We're talking about uh, customer experience and then how text analysis and data mining is being applied to social media as well. So first, let's think, though, a little bit about your experience as a customer. So I think a clear, you know, clear concept for any business is that success stems from understanding your customers. If you don't believe it from me, I have some very good sources who will back me up on this. Your most unhappy customers are your greatest sources of learning, it's something that Bill Gates adds. Howard Schultz of Starbucks says, we aren't in the coffee business serving people. We're in the people business serving coffee. And then to realize that it's not just these uh, pillars of modern-day industry, uh, but going back to uh, some, some Native American proverbs, truly to understand the man, you must first walk a mile in his moccasin. So I think the idea here is really clear, understanding your customers, and really, in some cases, the customers who are complaining really provide you with very powerful insights. If only you can tap into them. 
Because sometimes, you know, we just can't feel a customer's pain. We just can't understand. But you can't understand if you don't listen. And so what we do is to work to put together structured programs, structured approaches to be able to listen to the customer. So there's sort of an evolving field around the voice of the customer. And this is one application, but I think it's a really good one in terms of talking about how text analysis can be applied to uh, some, some common problems. So let me just tell you a little bit about voice of the customer programs just to sort of set the stage so that we're all at the same, the same point. So the first thing is that really a voice of the customer program exists so that you can monitor the customer experience. That is, you have a vantage point to see, ideally in the customer's own words, how things are sort of playing out for them on a day-by-day basis. Within an organization, that's often the greatest challenge because you're within the organization. You know how everything's supposed to work. You know the policies. You know the procedures. And so it's hard for you to understand sometimes where things break down, and a voice of the customer program really helps you to do that. But I think it's important to recognize that not every issue can really be addressed to the customer's satisfaction. This is really another way of saying, no, the customer is not always right. Sometimes you cannot meet that customer's expectation. Why? Because there's legal considerations, there's risk management considerations, and there just may be business decisions or organizational policy decisions that you consciously make which says you're not going to be able to meet that customer's expectation. But that's why this is about making conscious decisions. That's why this is using information to guide to a specific outcome. There's lots of information that we can gather. There's lots of things that we can analyze. But the ones that we're most interested in are the ones that we can actually do something about. What happens if you don't do anything? Why go through this process at all? Why does it matter? Well, clearly, here we have some some real statistics, some recent research, but um, nearly 100% of respondents have taken some kind of action due to a bad experience. So that may be they stopped going to that organization, soliciting that. Maybe they stopped giving donations. Maybe they stopped. Maybe they told people about their bad experience. Maybe they took even stronger action. But bad experiences do cause people to take action, and nearly 80% of them you know, told somebody else about it. So here's a specific application um, about how we've actually tried to apply this in a real-world situation. So here was the situation. Um, we were working with a very large uh, organization that was having a merger across, it says multiple states, but really it was across just about every state in the country. And it was incredibly important to be able to closely, closely track what was happening to customers as this merger continued state by state across the country. Well, one way we were able to understand the customers' problems was by being able to record their feedback um, from call centers. So we actually set up a process for people on the phone to essentially have kind of an electronic suggestion box. As as customers complained about certain things or had issues that they wanted to raise, that went into a database. We created those call center notes to be able to... um, uh, have, some, have some insight into what were on, on customers' minds. And then we saw a couple of things that were, um, that were very interesting. 
One of those things that we saw was that if we looked at the level of customer complaints, they really spiked when mailings went out talking about the new pricing and the new fee structure. It's not so much that people were upset about the new pricing, it's just they didn't really understand the new pricing, and that could have led, led to a lot of people leaving if there wasn't specific action taken. In some cases, there were also mistakes were made. There were errors in the process. Some, uh, some customers were not treated the way that they wanted to or the, the way that the organization wanted to. And so the organization actually had a great response. They actually sent out gift cards to people, and they said, in recognition of this recent inconvenience that you had, here's a gift card for your trouble. They thought that was a great way to be able to build trust with customers and be able to improve the customer experience. But what we found from doing the data mining and the text analysis is actually the customers were very skeptical. So they didn't understand why they were getting this gift card. They thought there were strings attached to it. They thought that there were hidden fees by getting the gift card. And so this thing where the organization was proactively reaching out to their customers to try to offer them something for the inconvenience didn't necessarily have the intended result. And in our case, again, the outcome, and so what do you do about that? Well, at least with this information and with this analysis, we're able to create those insights. Hey, customers are skeptical about the gift cards. Well, two things. One, we changed the gift card. We, we didn't mail them gift cards anymore. And two, we made an extra effort to explain this policy to customers so they knew why they were getting it and to try to clarify that issue for them. So let's talk a little bit about the different sources of data for text mining. And again, I'm going to use, uh, I'm going to use a, a kind of a banking-centric one, but you can really think about this as any of the touch points that exist between your organization and the, the people that touch your organization. So in this case, if you think about your experience, first of all, with, you know, with your bank. So if you take, take a minute and just think about your bank. So first of all, you have different product relationships, right? You have your checking account, you have your savings account. That sort of falls into the deposits bucket. Uh, you may have a mortgage. You may have a brokerage account. You may have other specialized accounts. Uh, you may have loans. Each of those different products that you have, there's probably a different way that you interact with the organization. In some cases, you just send an email. In some cases, maybe you go online and you spend time on their internet site. Maybe you check your balance. Maybe you make transfers. Maybe you make payments. These are all different touch points that you might use. Um, it might be that you just like the face-to-face -face contact, and so you want to make sure you walk into a branch and actually talk to somebody. All of these touch points are very rich sources. In the new age of text mining and predictive analytics, there are huge opportunities to be able to bring new information into the process, and it can be analyzed, and you can take action based on those insights. So the first set, and probably the most valuable ones that we think about right off the top, customer surveys. You know, customer comes in, you may ask them, uh, on a scale of 1 to 10, how likely are you to recommend our services to your friends and, you know, friends and loved ones? You'll have that quantitative data. But you might also ask, is there anything else you'd like to tell us? Is there anything else that's on your mind? And many times, it's those open-ended questions are the ones that are most insightful. That that's really what people are top of mind for.
But previously, without predictive analytics and text mining, there was no way to take comments from hundreds of customers, thousands of customers, tens of thousands of customers, hundreds of thousands of customers, millions of customers, tens of millions of customers, to be able to take all those open-ended comments and to really be able to do anything with them. Up till now, before applying text analysis, the way they analyzed them was to read them. So they had groups and groups of people filled up lots of rooms of people who spent their day reading customer comments, reading lots of comments, and trying to categorize them as best they could. You know, oh, you know what? This looks like this is an issue about uh, a deposit problem. Oh, look, this looks like this is a problem with an online banking problem. Oh, this looks like this is a problem with their mortgage. And so they went through a process of just sort of categorizing that. But the issue was sometimes the, the topic or the issue sort of creeps up on you. You don't know it's an issue until you sort of look back and you say, oh, my God, we're looking at this mortgage situation, and we realize that 18 months ago people started to talk about um, there being – being skeptical about the valuation of their home. They were happy about it, but they were skeptical. That wasn't an issue. That wasn't on the radar, and that wouldn't be classified. Certainly, we classify it today, but had we had the tools to be able to look at some of those emerging issues, we might have been able to unlock some of these issues and be able to put them on the agenda way in advance of actually seeing the problem. So we get a lot of the value, going back to the different types of data, we get a lot of that from this first-person comments. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of good insights that can come from that. But you don't always have the luxury of people really telling you, telling you like it is. They don't always tell you what's on their mind. They don't always fill out the survey. They don't always give you the data online. And so how do you then find out what they're thinking? How do you find out what the issues are? Here's a case where... As a, you know, as a problem solver, as an information professional, you can think about how do you now gather that data from a place where the data never existed before. So we have people going into a, going into a bank. We have literally millions of people every day you know, going into banks all over the country. How do we get information about that experience other than them filling out a survey? Well, one way we've done that is to have the banker start to capture their observations about that customer interaction. Was that a positive interaction? Was that a neutral interaction? Was that a negative interaction? We don't ask the banker to uh, pontificate or to analyze deep you know, Freudian motivations. We just want some top-level you know, top observations of their interactions with those customers. But once you start accumulating those observations across you know, uh, thousands of bankers across the country, you're now creating a new source of data. Those notes, when you start to take them through this um, text analysis process, we can begin to see major issues start to emerge. And so this whole idea of frontline input, here's another vantage point, another source of new data. It's the observations of the, of the people who are interacting with those customers. And then finally, lots of organizations have sort of escalation processes. You know, they, they take notes when an issue is escalated to, you know, when, you say, when someone says, I want to talk to your manager, 
um, those calls may be logged or treated in a different way. Oftentimes, those issues are particularly severe, and so those are particularly insightful in terms of understanding some of the problems that customers face and how to be able to unlock some of the value of, of what those issues are that people are, are, are going through. We've sort of also broken it down into thinking about um, where the data comes from. So in this case, just to, to sort of refresh your mind, we, we're talking about sort of the different types of data, right? So that's really the point here is first-person data, input from the front line, maybe inf input from escalation. But we also want to expand our view of what's possible in data mining and predictive analytics by opening up really sort of our perspective and bringing data in from a much wider scope. And now we really can do that. So the first, the first piece is really the internal piece. That's really what I've been talking about, is how do you get data from within your organization? And I think if we think about, you know, as an as a, as a organizational decision maker, we immediately go to what data do we have closest at hand. We're very internally focused. But I think as um, critical thinkers, as information professionals, as social scientists, as people trained in observation, we can now think about this larger external world and say, where is there data in the external world that we can pull into our analysis, and can we gain, again, actionable insights from that data? And so what we're finding is, is absolutely the answer is yes, and that this is really one of the most promising areas, I think, for text mining, is to look at the external environment. So clearly what comes to mind are things like Twitter and Facebook, um, but also just the multitude of blogs and things that are available on the Internet, as well as um, just press releases, you know, information in the news, being able to take that all of that text information now has the potential to be inputs for an analyst to be able to start thinking about problems and structuring it and using that data to come up with actionable insights. And then finally, in some industries where they're heavily regulated, oftentimes the most severe complaints are escalated outside of the organization to the attorney general's office or the um, you know, other federal regulators or maybe even someone like the Better Business Bureau. It's sometimes possible to gain access to that data for analysis as well. So you can see we've really sort of, you know, if we started with just the lower, uh, I guess that's lower left-hand corner with sort of solicited comments and structured data, we've now seen that to really to be able to do the text mining and text analysis, this whole world of additional perspective is opened up. And one thing that predictive analytics and the powerful software tools allow you to do is to be able to scale, to be able to take on tremendous volume of data. And so now there's really no limitation. You can look at you know, millions of customer emails. You can look at social media mentions. You can look at freeform comments and unstructured data and really have a, a methodology to start pulling that information together and being able to do something with it. Let me just make a side, it's just a, a passing remark of more detailed about social media, because I think a lot of people, there's been a lot of information in the news about um, uh, privacy on Facebook, about what people can actually learn from you, from your profile on LinkedIn, uh, uh, what, what uh, your, your tweets on Twitter mean, uh, your blog posts, um, how, how can that information come together? 
Um, I can tell you the easy answer is uh, those are tremendous sources of inputs for the prospective text miner, and there are tremendous insights that are coming from that. Um, right now, the data is, there's, there's challenges in being able to aggregate the data and to be able to frame the questions in a way that helps people come up with actionable insights. But it's something that my, my company does a lot around in terms of how do you look at what's actionable in this sea of noise. There are some needles in the haystack. And there are some ways to be able to connect the dots, and it's, and it's very powerful. And I think that this, this presentation, a year from now, I won't have one slide on social media. I'll probably have, you know, 90% of my slides will probably be about social media. So now, let's talk about, we've talked about sort of what predictive analytics is, how text mining can add these additional insights, but we really haven't talked about, well, so how does this all work? You know, how do you, what, what is it that actually gets us to those actionable insights? And so I want to give you just some, um, some perspective on the role of the tools and the technology versus the roles of the analyst and the information professional as you, as you face some of these issues. So the first thing is predictive analytics, if we refer back to that idea, is it's not just the tool but it's the technique, right? That there's a process to being able to um, look at the problem, structure it in a certain way, gather data on it, create models, and be able to reach you know, specific outcomes. There is a industry standard approach. This is called, uh, this actually has a name. It's called uh, CRISP-DM. Um, and, it, and essentially, it's a standardized methodology for thinking about data mining. A couple of things, I'm not going to go through the, the, the huge amount of detail here, um, but a couple of things I do want to point out. Data mining, predictive analytics, start with the business understanding, or if you want to frame it as the organizational understanding. So really, your expertise about your organization, how it functions, who it serves, what your policies are, um, all of those things are fundamental to obtaining success with predictive analytics. This is not about, you know, throwing a bunch of data into a machine and hitting a button and walking away. This is all about how the information professional thinks about the problem by knowing the organization and bringing their expertise to structuring and answering the problem. So that is the most fundamental piece. And it's really, it's make or break. So many times I think people are, um, think that they can just get a new data set, run it through the algorithms, and out will come some magical insights. And I wish that it was that easy, um, but the answer is it is not. It's very painstaking to understand the organization, and that's a key driver in this whole process. So the skills that you're learning about information and how it impacts organizations, that really comes into play in this particular piece around the business understanding. There's also a bridge to the next piece, which is the data understanding. So that is what data is initially available, so collecting the initial data. It's also tremendously important about describing the data. So how do we um, define the metadata about the data that we're working with? What systems do we have for managing the metadata? 
Um, how do users access the metadata when they're going to go do an analysis? This is one of the huge Achilles heels in the process. So many people want to skip this step of data understanding, and they start to try to do analysis and build models and realize they do not understand the underlying information. And so therefore, you may have a model, and it may be generating variables and have outcomes, but at the end of the day, those insights are not actionable because you haven't gone through this process of the data understanding. There's also some mechanical parts that start to come in play with the data preparation. As we talked about with this multitude of data inside your organization, externally, across the world, different forms, preparing the data and pulling it into the process of, of doing the modeling is a step in and of itself. And there are increasingly software tools to be able to help you prepare the data for that analysis. Now, the modeling piece is really how you, as a problem solver, define the problem. That's the first part of modeling, is what is, how are we going to approach the structure of this problem? And then, what, what tools can we use? What approaches can we leverage to be able to um, gain some insights by creating, uh, by creating some of these models? So, that might be, in text analysis, that might be, on one hand, we might just do purely a linguistic model. We'll look at the way that words are used. You know, words are used in certain contexts. They're used in, uh, in association with other words. There's certain themes. There's certain concepts. All that, that might be, that's one whole set of modeling, and we might create linguistic models to be able to understand that, that text source. But there's other modeling approaches. We might take we might use statistics and decision trees to say, statistically speaking, when you say ATM, you also, more, than, more, more often than not, when you say deposit, you're actually talking about a deposit and not a direct deposit. Or when you say, when you mention a URL, you're probably talking about online banking and not um, you know, your visit to your Facebook page. So we can employ statistical models in addition to the linguistic models to be able to gain additional insights. Again, it all depends on the way we frame the problem and the way that we're and the, and the questions that we're really trying to answer to be able to gain those uh, actionable insights. That really sort of takes place in this modeling phase. Then it's a really a matter of we've created a model, it's produced output, it's given us answers. Now what do we do? Um, are those good answers? Are those the right answers? Are those helpful? Um, there's no way that the computer knows if those are going to be good answers or not. They just know that it's run its process, and here's the answer, and it's really up to, again, the analyst, the information professional, to go through a process, a human process, a thinking process, to evaluate the output of that model and to ensure that it actually solves the problem that it's meant to, that it's meant to solve. And then finally, great, the analysis has worked, it's a success, how do you actually put it into place in your organization? You've learned now that when people call and they say that they're uh, really unhappy, that, they, that there's a chance that they're going to leave. What do you do about that information? Who needs to know that? How are they going to react when they hear that? Is there a special, and, and how might they react? What might you do? Well, one thing you might do is to say, if there's certain clues from the model, if someone really looks like they're at risk to leave, transfer that call 
to a separate group that's purely focused on saving customer relationships. Give those people additional autonomy to be able to work with the customer to come up with a solution. You can't do that with all customers, but if the model says that this, this is a person who has a high propensity to leave, and, that's a, and the model says that they're a high-value customer, then your action is pass that call to somebody who can save that relationship. That's how you can, that's how you can think through some of the challenges of deploying the, the model that you create, deploying this process so that, in fact, you get actionable, you know, actionable outcomes. So... I just wanted to take you through a little bit more of just the thinking process. So what does an analyst actually, you know, how do you get started in this? So your, your first day on the job, your organization has decided to launch into doing a, or you want to you launch a predictive analytics project. You want to step through this, what we call this business understanding um, phase. So what's that look like? This is literally our questionnaire of how we start that discussion to learn about new organizations so that we can come up to speed, so that we can be able to help them with predictive analytics. Some really fundamental questions, probably questions that you would face that you would think of in, in your, your expertise as well. What's the focus of your business? Um, what segments of the customer base does your business engage? Describe the data flow from the perspective of the customer and the internal business applications. Who's giving us this information? Where is this information coming from? Is this from the customer? Is this from the banker? Is this from some, some other source? Um, how do you use the data? These are really basic, really fundamental questions, but they are essential to the success of predictive analytics and, and text mining. I think we've already said it, but I think this sort of really sort of brings it together is that, you know, it's the information professional's critical thinking that is, in fact, more important than the computing. The computer, the software, the algorithms that they represent are incredibly powerful tools. But the tools without the right analysts, without the right thinking, without Posing the question in a way that it can lead to actionable results is never going to lead to success. So it really is the information professional who is at the core of this process for predictive analytics. So we have in mind an idea of what the cause is, and that's something that human perspective brings, that's critical thinking brings, and what we're trying to do is predict how likely that effect is. So this is really a process of of testing hypotheses, of exploring, of trying to work our way through, um, but using data versus our intuition as a way of being able to solve these, uh, solve these issues. Also, we find that to be able to really make sure that you've got good results, uh, you know, oftentimes the model looks great. You know, the output looks like it's fantastic. But again, the computer can't really tell you if it's a fit to what happens in the real world. It's only the information professional, it's only the analyst who can really tell you that the model that you have really does work. Now, there are some techniques, there are some ways to partition the data, apply the model in different partitions, do different cause and effect testing, but really at the end of the day, whether or not it works is really a human judgment call. The model is only, you know, is only as good as the analyst that, that has created it. 
So what I've tried to do today is just sort of give you an overview of data mining and predictive analytics. And we talked about what it is, um, went through some case studies, the way that it's being applied today. For us, I think it's incredibly exciting about um, text analysis and the ability to take completely unstructured text comments and to structure them and add them as inputs, structured data, part of a modeling process, there's obviously a tremendous payoff there, and we're really excited about that. At the end of the day, I think I've made the case that it really is the individual analyst that really is at the center of this, and so it's your skills as an information professional and asking the right questions. So I think that we're going to continue to see huge advances for predictive analytics, and I think it's going to become increasingly pervasive. More data is going to be incorporated into the model. What that means is the companies that you do business with, the organizations that you have um, a history with, even your public discourse through social media is now fair game. It's now something that can be structured. It's something that can be analyzed. It's now another piece of the puzzle about who you are as an individual, what you think, what you like, what you're likely to do, what you're not likely to do, they really have an opportunity to learn a lot more about you than maybe some of your closest friends. So I think that this raises some very important and interesting public policy questions. What are the limits? Now, when we talk about privacy, I think it's a little clearer. We can say there's some information that we do not want to disclose, right? So we can say some information is public and some information is private. It cannot be disclosed. But largely, m many aspects of predictive analytics are using publicly available data, data from a multitude of sources. And information is now much more accessible and can be structured in a way to be much more insightful about you and your behavior. So it's not a simple matter of saying, you know, privacy says we shouldn't have access to this. We're really talking about perhaps putting limits on the way that people can use information. So the information is there, but are we going to create policies that say you cannot have this information or you cannot use this information or you can only use this information for accepted purposes. Well, that obviously raises some very interesting questions about who gets to make those judgment calls and what the future looks like, particularly for a field such as yours where information is central to what you do. So much of what you do is about spreading information and making information as widely possible, as, as, you know, as widely available as possible. I think that for your field, you'll certainly be leaders in helping to describe you know, some of these issues and to figure out if there are, if there are ethical considerations that, as a field, need to be uh, addressed. So I want to uh, just save a few minutes and say, well, first of all, thank you very much for the opportunity to come and talk to you about predictive analytics and about um, text mining. We do have a couple of minutes available to um, uh, ask a couple of questions, and we have a microphone here if anybody wants to uh, be able to ask anything. I'm certainly happy to, uh, to do that. One of the things that I think that, um, you know, librarians or people from library school bring that's unique to this process is being, um, understanding classification and categorization. So when you're um, 
in the process of taking unstructured data and converting it into structured data. So, you know, if you're taking something from, say, a Twitter feed, you need to get it into a database format, correct? Um, how much do you rely on technology versus how much do you rely on human intervention? It's a combination. That's a great, uh, that is a great point. Classification is tremendously important, and it's important actually at several different levels. So um, on one hand, we do a lot of classification that is what I'd say rule-based classification based on linguistics. And so thinking about, first of all, how do you even... Uh, how do you structure a taxonomy, really? How do you look at sort of a, a range of different issues, put it into categories, and then define? The computer has to have specific rules to be able to take those words and be able to put them in those classifications. And so, and how do you let the how do you let the computer know that when we're talking about when we're talking about card and and uh, and a debit card? Well, that's like ATM. But when we're talking about card and um, and the fact that you can use it at, at some merchant somewhere, I might also be talking about a gift card. Or I also might be talking about some other stored value card or a smart card. I can no longer just say card. There's now a lot of context about how I now classify that set of, you know, that set of information. So that whole process of classification is tremendously important to this, to this field. So are you using the same people who are the business intelligence analysts, or are you using someone who's a specialist in this type of thing? You know, you know how to, how, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how this yeah, gets. Yeah, so, so that's a, I think that's also a really good question in terms of who actually does this. I, I think it's actually it's a combination of both. Um, what we, the one thing that the technology has done has been to make the process of classifying information more accessible to a wider audience. So... Analysts with business understanding and, and strong critical thinking skills now have tools that help them to um, develop systems of classification in a fairly straightforward way. So the first level is, yes, the day-to-day -day sort of uh, information analyst is able to do that. However, what we find is, particularly for social media, but in other, in other domains as well, is that because the business context matters so much, that as you get um, more and more specific and more and more actionable with the outcomes, you do need a higher level of understanding about how to build that classification system. And so I can definitely see people with um, you know, library and information science backgrounds being tremendously valuable to that process of building those, you know, building those categories. Uh, you're saying that it would be helpful if a library information science uh, specialist or information specialist would also take a class on marketing and learn how to choose words that would best reach different uh, uh, demographics of clients? You know, I don't think that that's, necessar that that's necessary. I think it's actually, you know, I think that what, a, what the analyst or information professional needs to know is what are the drivers of the organization? What are the, what are the things that are most important about how that organization functions? But they don't have to be the marketing expert. What they need to do is create the insights that are in a form that can be used by the marketing people and deployed. And so that there's a work between the analysts and the person who's going to be putting it into effect. So you need to know, I guess, enough to be able to have that discussion, but you don't have to be that person who's creating the marketing strategy or, or you know, deploying the ads out into the out into the marketplace. Okay, well thank you all very much. Really appreciate the opportunity to be here today. Thank you. Thank you.